Well, good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad to be with you, or I'm so glad to have you join us on this live stream. I wish you were here in the building this morning uh, singing Christmas songs, Advent songs, as we await the coming of Jesus, while our remembrance of his coming is one of my favorite times of year. In fact, my first preaching sermon series ever was in the month of December, and that's when I learned that I loved preaching and that God might be calling me to do it. And I love hearing these songs that have so much rich theology as we anticipate the coming of Jesus's birth. Um, I love doing that with the church family, and I'm missing all of you this morning, and I'll be missing you guys this month, but so glad to have you on the live stream. Today, we do kick off our new Advent series, The Four Words of Advent, and traditionally, uh, in Advent wreath has five candles. The fifth one is the Christ candle. We save that for Christmas Eve, but the, can the four candles leading up to Christmas Eve represent hope, peace, joy, and love. And so this Advent season, we're just going to take those words each week and look at the biblical meaning behind these words. And today is hope, as, uh, as you may have figured out by the lighting of the candle and the great video there from the Bible Project. And so today we're talking about hope. It's a great time for us to be talking about hope and the biblical understanding of hope because the biblical understanding of hope is quite different than the cultural understanding of hope. If you were to ask me what I hoped for in this, in this year, 2020, some of the things would have been a sabbatical that I was supposed to have this last summer, uh, my kids going to school a couple days a week this, this year, which would have given us a little bit of peace and quiet at our home. Brittany and I were supposed to take a trip to Colorado with some other pastors and wives to stay in a resort and have a pastoral retreat. We were going to check off a few baseball stadiums from our tour list. We have it in our mind that in our lifetime, we're going to hit all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums. Uh, we've got 12 in, and we were supposed to hit a couple more this year. That didn't happen. Uh, there's a lot of things that I hoped for that didn't come to pass, that didn't come to fruition. And this is how we often think about hope as, as people. We, we, we think about it as something that we're, that we're wanting to happen, but we're not quite sure if it will happen. That's what the Bible Project video said, that, it, that, that it's this optimism based on odds. That's worldly hope or human hope. We, we kind of have this bright outlook of the future because we think that things will stack up in the way that we're longing them to. But the Bible Project video also said that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is not that. Biblical hope is being sure of the future. I want to define biblical hope for, for us this morning as the present possession of a future promise. Biblical hope is the present possession of a future promise. Now you may ask, how can you possess something that hasn't come to pass yet? How can you have possession of something in the present if it's a promise for the future? Well, that's the unique thing about biblical hope is that we know in spite of what's happening here in the present, in spite of our circumstances, in spite of you not getting to celebrate Thanksgiving in the way that you wanted to, in spite of you not being able to, to flood stores on Black Friday, not that anyone even wanted to do that. Um, I've never understood that phenomenon. But in spite of all the things that have been taken from you in this last year, all the things that you were hoping for, humanly speaking, not coming to pass. Biblical hope is that, that we know that the future holds something greater for us. Regardless of what is happening in the present, we have hope, we have confidence, we have joy in the future because God has promised us something. And we can actually hold on to that in the present. It's like when, when uh, Brittany and I were dating, I was hoping, I, I, I was wanting it to lead to marriage. 
And then when I asked her to marry me and she said yes, my, I, I, my hope became a little more real. I had this, this present possession. I, was, I, I had this possession of this relationship for a promise that she said she would marry me down the road on August 5th, 2006. There it is. Um, and then upon sharing our vows, I now had this even greater possession of something that wasn't yet, well, it, it's happening, right? That's what biblical hope is. It's, it's this thing that's happening as we look towards this future promise. See, Brittany and I promised to each other in our wedding vows that we would stay married until death do us part. That's a future promise. Neither of us have passed away yet. But we have possession of this promise made and we're working towards the end of that promise. That's biblical hope. I love how, how Peter captures it in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, He, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what it means to have a present possession of a future promise. See, regardless of what you're going through this season, what, regardless of what you've been going through for many years and many different seasons, if you are in Christ, you have present possession of a future promise. The future promise is that you have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. Isn't that good news for us this morning? That, that when everything that we want, many of the things that we want are stripped away from us for various reasons, as Christians, we have hope, eternal hope, hope that looks forward to the future, hope that does not disappoint, a living hope, an active hope, because we have a future promise, and our souls already possess that promise. There is a day coming in the future. Revelation 21 tells us about it when Jesus will return or call us home and death shall be no more and there shall be no more tears or suffering or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, I have made all things new, says the Lord. That is the future promise. And here and now, if we're in Christ, we have present possession of that. We can live our lives regardless of the circumstances knowing that there is a better day, a better future, a better Something better coming for us, and that's why we have hope. And so this morning, we're going to talk about biblical hope. I want to look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, as we look at hope in Scripture this morning. Now that we understand what biblical hope is, let's look at it, an example of it here in the Scriptures. So turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, to get an idea of the richness of biblical hope. Starting in Matthew chapter 12. Verse 15. And just for a little context here, before I start reading, Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders didn't like that. He was breaking their rules. He was breaking their customs. And so Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, as Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath, verse 14 says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Religious people often want to destroy people of faith. The Pharisees wanted to kill, to destroy Jesus because he was turning all of what they had worked for, all of their religious systems, all of their religious duty upside down as he shows us what true biblical hope and meaning is, as he declares and demonstrates to us the gospel. And so with that, we move into verse 15. It says, Jesus, aware of this, aware of the fact that the Pharisees were conspiring against him to destroy him, he withdrew from there. <clears throat> 
Seems like a good, good plan. If there's people conspiring to kill you, maybe you ought to withdraw, hide for a while. Jesus obviously didn't do this forever. He allowed himself to be killed by the mob, but right now wasn't the time yet, and so he withdraws. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, he ordered them not to make this known, that, that he was healing people, and that he was the Messiah because his time hadn't come yet. And as verse 17 says, this was to fulfill this prophet, this prophecy spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Pick it up in verse 18. This prophecy from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3 says, Behold, my servant whom I ch have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So here's our key text for today, and we're going to walk through this and, and get an understanding of what this passage has to say to us about hope. And really the key here is that in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Most of us on this live stream, most of us who make up Park Community Church are Gentiles. We're, we're not Jews. We're not ethnic Jews or religious Jews. We are Gentiles. We've been grafted in. And so there's great meaning in this verse for us because it's prophesying from Isaiah forward to the time of Jesus and from the time of Jesus forward to the time that we are living here and now in 2020 that in his name, in the name of Jesus, the Gentiles and really all people groups, all nations, all ethnicities will hope. And so let's look at this passage and ask two questions. Why should we hope in Jesus? We understand now what biblical hope is. And if biblical hope is, is this present possession of a future promise, why should we put our hope in Jesus practically according to this passage? And then how do we hope in Jesus? What are some practical ways for us as people who follow Jesus, who call him Lord, to grow in our hope of him? Because I don't know about you, but I definitely tend to hope things that I can see, that I can touch. I, I tend to misplace my hope. And so how can we practically grow our hope in Jesus? Somebody who lived 2,000 years ago. He, he died and rose again. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He's living now. He's active. And we see signs and evidences of him all around us, but we don't see him physically. We don't hear his audible voice. We don't touch him. And so how can we practically grow our hope in a man who we don't see. That's where we're going this morning. Five reasons to hope in Jesus based off of this text. There's many more throughout the scriptures, many more in the gospels, but based off of this text, I see five specific reasons to hope in Jesus. The first one is that Jesus is God's chosen servant. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and promise. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied as the, as the Lord filled him with prophecy and with knowledge and with wisdom to share with the people of God that the Messiah was coming, the chosen servant of God. And this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 42 says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. See, Jesus is God's chosen servant, God's chosen Messiah. He's the anointed Messiah. There's 
so many prophecies and promises that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus, in his birth, in the virgin birth. At, at, at Christmas, we have this wonderful chance to be reminded of all of these Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. And if you're a Christian who sometimes has doubts, let this be a reminder to you that there is historic reliability, historic accuracy to the person of Jesus. That the Old Testament is, is the book of the Jews, one of the world's major religions. And Jesus is prophesied about, this Messiah is prophesied about over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes fulfilling these prophecies and fulfilling many of the promises of the Old Testament. Some of the promises exist in like this here and now. Jesus fulfilled some of the promises, but he came to help move some of these promises forward and we're still waiting for the second coming. See, Advent means waiting. It's both, it's both waiting as we anticipate the celebration of his birth, but then it's waiting for his second coming and, and for these promises that are yet to be fulfilled. But we need to remember here as we as we remember Christmas and Advent that Jesus is the fulfillment of so much Old Testament prophecy and promise. And if you're a non-Christian listening to this, you really need to wrestle with who is Jesus? He's a historical figure. He really lived 2,000 years ago. Historians don't refute whether Jesus of Nazareth really lived and was really crucified on a Roman cross. This is just historic fact. They dispute who he was and if he was really the son of God and if he was really the chosen Messiah. But this prophecy from Isaiah and, and the gospels and then the account of his life and then the fruit that came from his life and the eyewitness of the apostles say that this man is the chosen, chosen servant of God. As Isaiah prophesied years before and as Matthew, the, the author of this gospel now is recording as he walks with Jesus, as he talks with Jesus, as he observes Jesus' life. He says, he, he quotes Isaiah saying, Behold, my chosen servant, my servant whom I have chosen. We put our hope in Jesus because he is God's chosen servant. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and promise. Secondly, we put hope in Jesus because he is God's beloved son. Continue looking at verse 18. It says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. See, God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit all existed forever. They were not created by anyone, but they created together. And in this loving relationship, God has this deep, meaningful love for Jesus, his son. Listen to these words of a father speaking about his son, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Speaking as a father, if you want to garner favor with me, show favor to my kids. I love my kids. And so if, if you want my favor, you ought to respect and treat my kids well. In a similar way, God is a relational being. He has this loving relationship with his son. And sometimes, I mean, God is wholly other than us. He, we are created in his image and likeness, but he is unlike us in so many ways, but in many ways he's like us. And sometimes we, we disconnect kind of this ethereal picture of God that he's wholly other than us. He's, he's, he can't be seen or touched. And sometimes we forget how real and relational God is. 
that he has a son. His son's name is Jesus. He loves his son. That's what verse 18 is telling us. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And so we put our hope in Jesus, our our present possession of a future promise, because Jesus is God's chosen servant, but he's also his loved son. And if we want to be in a good standing with Yahweh, in right relationship with God, we need to be in right relationship with the son of whom he loves. And consider this. We put our hope in Jesus because he is God's loved son, yes, but also through Jesus we are adopted into God's family. And so God has this incredible love. He says, Jesus, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. But when we come to Jesus and put our faith in him, scripture, the New Testament talks about how we are then adopted into God's family. Jesus is our elder brother, and we are now sons and daughters of the living God. So what God says about Jesus, this is my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, is what is true of you if you're in Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus because as you come to God through Jesus, God says of you, this is my beloved son or daughter with whom my soul is well pleased. Church family, in a world where where we're so concerned about pleasing others and being approved by others, being praised by others, not disappointing others, what you need to know is that if your identity is in Christ, hidden with God, you are an adopted son or daughter of God, and God, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, looks at you and he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and with you my soul is well pleased. You are my beloved. Amen? We need to know that, church, because life is filled with this endless search for approval and praise from others, and you have it from God through his son, Jesus. And so we hope in Jesus because he is God's beloved son, and as we hope in Jesus, we become God's beloved sons and daughters. Number three, we hope in Jesus because he heals the hurting and he helps the weak. Look at verse 15. As Jesus was aware of this, he withdrew, aware of the Pharisees' attack on him. He withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. We, we put our hope in Jesus because he is a healer. He heals the hurting. Sometimes physically, always spiritually, He's always working to heal us spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and oftentimes physically. Not always. It's a reminder that this world is not our home, that that we hope in this imperishable future kept in heaven for us. So that's why physical healings always don't accompany coming to Jesus and putting your hope in Jesus. But oftentimes it does. In this setting, he healed everyone who came to him. There's many accounts of Jesus doing physical, miraculous healings of people in the scriptures, but also here now today. Again, that doesn't always happen, but what we need to know as we consider putting our hope in Jesus is that he's always working to heal the hurting who come to him in faith. And then he also helps the weak. I love this. So, well, verse 15 tells us that in this setting, in this case, in this story being recorded here, he healed everyone who came to him. Carry on to verse 19. And says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, 
nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. This is where we begin to understand that he helps the weak. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. A bruised reed, it, it, it's somebody who's been beaten up, who's been abused, who's been broken. It's, it's a Christian who's filled with sin, who's, who's wavering, same as a smoldering wick. I mean, in this culture and context, they didn't have electricity. You couldn't flip on a light with a switch. You had to light candles. You had to light lanterns. And so this imagery of a smoldering wick was very useful to them. It, it, it's someone whose light is about to go out. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for years, or maybe you're new to your walk with Jesus, or maybe you're curious about what it means to walk with Jesus, and, and you've experienced how it seems like, do, do I even have any faith? I feel so weak. I feel like my light, my passion, my love is withering. Jesus helps the weak. The promise here about Jesus, this is why we can have hope, says that if you are in him, even though you may be a smoldering wick, even though your faith may be wavering and you may feel like it may be snuffed out, the promise from Isaiah as he prophesies about Jesus and Matthew as he recounts this prophecy and as Jesus comes and fulfills it is that if you are in him, he will not put you out. Weakness is where God often swoops in and does the most powerful work in us. A bruised reed he will not break. Reeds were used in, in um, I'm not much of a musician, so I'm probably going to botch the terms here, but, you know, like woodwinds, reeds, there's instruments that you use a reed, like a clarinet and a saxophone and saxophone? Yeah, I got the thumbs up from Ben. Other instruments that have a wood reed in it, and if that reed is, is bruised or it's weakened or it's not, I know you're supposed to get reeds wet in instruments. I'm not, I'm going to go off this analogy because I'm running out of things. I didn't do my study on, on reed instruments, but I do know if it's not proper, the sound won't be right. Also, they would use reeds in, in creating walking sticks, in this culture and day and age, and, and a weakened reed would not create a good walking stick or a good instrument. And so here, this prophecy is reminding us that Jesus comes to help the weak, that if we are like a bruised reed and, and, and the sounds that we're making spiritually are out of tune, and, and the stick that we're walking with seems shaky and like it's about to snap, it's about to break, if our spiritual life, if our souls are withering, they're like a wick about to be put out, Jesus will not break you. He will not quench you. Hope in Jesus, church, because regardless of where you're at in your spiritual walk, if you are in him, he's fighting for you. He's helping you in your weakness. He's not kicking you while you're down. If you feel like your spiritual life is, is the equivalent of a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, you are in a great position to receive help from Jesus. That's why we hope in him. Fourthly, he brings justice to victory. Look at the end of verse 18 here. 
This prophecy says, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then down in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. See, we hope in Jesus because he is working out God's plan of justice in us and for us. This idea of justice here, it, it, it's Jesus both proclaims justice. Justice means what is right, what is good, what is true. So Jesus comes proclaiming justice, as we're told in verse 18. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He proclaims it. He teaches us what is good and right and true. But he doesn't just teach us what justice is. He doesn't just proclaim justice. He also obtains justice for us. He is justice. Jesus is what is right. He is what is good. He is what is true. And he justifies sinners. As it says in verse 20, that he, he, he will not quarrel in the streets. He will not raise his voice. Notice Jesus' path towards justice. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Quite a parallel to many of the things that have happened in the streets and the cries for justice that we've seen in our world over the last couple months. The world's cry and longing for justice, it comes from this, this deep, embedded, God-embedded desire for us to experience what's right and true and equitable. But our path towards justice is often very opposite of Christ's way to bring justice, to both proclaim and obtain justice. It says in verse 18 that he proclaims justice, Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And so he has proclaimed justice, and he's currently bringing justice to victory. When we come to Jesus in faith and we surrender our lives to him, the scriptures, the New Testament over and over again teaches us that that means that we've become justified, that we are made right before God, that God looks at us and sees us as holy, righteous, pure, and spotless. So when this prophecy says that, that he will not stop caring for the hurting, healing the hurting and helping the weak. He will not stop until he brings justice. So the cry of our hearts for justice is to come to Jesus and to receive his spiritual justification. When we come to Jesus, he makes us spiritually justified, spiritually right before God the Father. That's what I said earlier. When we become adopted sons and daughters, God sees you as he says about Jesus, as his beloved with whom his soul is well pleased. Jesus gives us spiritual justice, and he's also working out physical justice. Earthly justice. Justice here on earth. That's what Jesus came to do, and, and he does it in an upside-down way. He doesn't do it top-down through the courts and through the politics, but bottom-up as people come to him, and he gives them spiritual renewal, spiritual justice, as he works justice to victory in us internally and makes us right with God and begins to renew our relationship with others. This is how he's changing the world and bringing justice to victory. This is, this is the tension of hope. It's this present possession of a future promise. See, we have possession right now of 
Jesus' justice. He's brought victory to justice for the believer. We have been justified to God the Father. We are right with him. We are reconciled to him. We are good. But yet justice on earth, it's so lacking and it's so desired and, and so we possess justice with God and he is working out justice in our churches, in our, in our Christian communities, and he's working out justice in the world through us. Present possession of a future promise, and there will come a day where this justice is totally and forever brought to victory. And then lastly, the fifth reason that we hope in Jesus is because he offers hope to all the nations of the world. As verse 21 says, in, in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is actually, I, I don't like the translation here, Gentiles. Gentile just means non-Greek or non-Jew, a Greek or anyone who is a non-Jew in this setting. But the better translation of this word, it comes from the Greek word ethnos, which is where we get our word ethnicity or race or nation. So really what this passage is saying is that in his name, in the name of Jesus, all the nations of the world, all the ethnicities, all the races, all the peoples of the world will have hope. Jesus comes and he opens the door wide open for all people. He is a Jewish Messiah, but he's not the Messiah for just the Jews. He's the Messiah for all of mankind. Most of us here are non-Jews. We're Gentiles. We hope in Jesus because he opened the door for us. He made a way for you and I to be right with God the Father, for you and I to be adopted as sons and daughters, for you and I to hear the Father's voice of us saying, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Five reasons we hope in Jesus based off this text. Now, in a practical way, how do we hope in Jesus? We can't see him, we can't touch him. We sing about him, we read about him, but practically, how do we grow in our hope of Jesus? Two things in this text that I want to pull out. The first one is by beholding his works. Look at how this prophecy starts out. In verse 18, it says, Behold. The word behold is all over the scriptures, and it's a command. Often we don't see it as a command. Many times people are like, I, I want some more lists of what to do in your sermons. Can you, can you give me some practical ideas? And there's a time and a place for that. And people often don't see this as a practical idea or a thing to do, but it is. This is a command. Behold. Behold my servant. This prophecy from Isaiah that Matthew is recounting is telling us what to do. How do you grow in your hope of Jesus, in your hope in Jesus? By beholding his works. By looking upon, considering, remembering his works. That's as practical as you can be. I'm not going to tell you when or where or how to do, to do that. But the command here in Scripture is that if you want to grow a deeper, more profound hope in Jesus, a better possession of the future promise, you do that by beholding his works. That's exactly what this passage does. It says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. And he quotes this passage from Isaiah. And then throughout the book of Matthew, it's Jesus doing one work after another, after another, after another. And so, church family, if you want to grow in your hope, remember what he has done and is doing, both biblically and personally. 
Read the scriptures and behold who Jesus is. Look at miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Look at teaching after teaching after teaching. Look at sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Look at him caring for the hurting, helping the weak over and over again. And behold who he is. Don't just read scripture as some dry devotional activity that I got to check this off my list. No, behold Jesus as you read his word. Become fascinated with who he is. Read these miracles and behold his nature and his character and his work, both biblically and personally. Think through your life. How has Jesus been faithful? How has he been patient with me? How has he provided for me? How has he brought community around me when I needed it the most? That's beholding his works. And as we do that, we grow in our hope, our present possession of a future promise. And then lastly, we hope in Jesus by declaring his name. Just by declaring his name. Look at verse 21. It says, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And so if we are to hope in the name of Jesus, we grow in our hope of Jesus by declaring the name of Jesus. Simple as that. That's one of the reasons why we typically gather in person on Sundays, but even now when we're not gathering in person, why you ought to get onto a live stream and sing with us, or at least sit on your couch and listen to the songs, because it's a way that we declare his name. Weekly at Park Community Church, right now, 10 a.m. on Facebook Live, we declare the name of Jesus. This is no small thing. It's a practical way that we grow in our hope in him because it says, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. His name represents a person, but his name is powerful. And so church family, this Advent season, if you want to grow in your hope of Jesus, read the scriptures and behold who Jesus is and what he does, and then declare his name. Declare his name to each other. If you're a family, declare his name to one another. Right now, Jesus Jesus, Jesus. If you're watching this alone, type the name of Jesus into the chat. Call a friend and talk about Jesus. Call a family member, talk about Jesus. Proclaim the name of Jesus. And as we do these two things, we grow our hope in Jesus. We, we gain a greater present possession of the future promise, which will help us to walk through anything. Church family, if we have a present possession of the future promise that we have in Jesus, you can withstand a quarantine. You can withstand some stores being shut down. You can withstand not being able to go to a restaurant for a while. You can withstand virtual homeschool. You can withstand virtual church for a season. If you have a present possession of a future promise that God will return and bring you home, that you have an eternal life stored up for you, that God has gone to prepare a place for you, a mansion, the scriptures say, with a room for you to spend all of eternity in with him and his saints, you can withstand the season. Grow your hope by declaring, beholding his works and declaring his name. I'm going to pray, and then the worship team is going to come up and do exactly what the last point says. They're going to declare his name as we close out this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for being our hope. I pray that we would grow in our hope of you this season. In your name we pray. Amen.